0: evening everyone. It is wonderful to see you all. So we're in uh, week week four actually of our series through Colossians. I love preaching through books of the Bible because when you do this you come to the parts of the scripture that are difficult and I love the difficult parts of scriptures like those people that ask the difficult questions of you in your life and actually when you take the time to answer the difficult questions it's the moment when you grow the most or learn the most. And uh, as we get to Colossians um, 3, which we've been in for a, a few weeks now, um, we see Paul addressing something that I think actually turns out to be more difficult than we imagine. He's, um, and that's what I'm preaching on tonight is, um, our, the title I've given is, Created in Our Image. And uh, you'll see in a few moments why that is. But it's actually about us being a multicultural church. And you only have to look around in the hall today and you realize that we are full of different nationalities, different cultures different ethnic groups and tongues. I did wonder, as Matt was talking about praying in your own tongue, how um, difficult it would actually would be to pray with somebody else's tongue. You know, yeah, well, anyway, at least. Um, but uh, I just thought we'd start by, by um, looking at how many different nationalities there are here, how many different countries are represented here. So maybe what you can do is you can shout out your country, and then we can uh, take it from there. Zimbabwe. What else? Give us another country. Great Britain, Sri Lanka, India, South Africa, China, Pakistan, Nigeria, huh? Cameroon, Colombo, Colombia, sorry, huh? Zambia, I've been to Zambia, Australia, Australia, <laughs> oi, oi, oi. What else? Indonesia. New Zealand. America. (laughs) Sorry? Jordan. There we go. Kenya. Sorry? France. Beautiful. Croatia. That's right, Croatia. Mauritius. Mauritius. And I'm sure there are others in this place as well, and uh, one of the things that I love about Dubai is that God has brought so many people groups together, and uh, we're going to have a, uh, I'm going to teach a bit about this tonight and see what Paul says about how we live as a multicultural community, and I'm going to be preaching from Colossians 3, verse 10 to 12, especially verse 11, and I want to get into that now, so if you've got your Bibles, you can pull them out. I'm going to read this text from the New Living Translation. Um, just because it, it reads easier out of it. Paul writes, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. God chose you to be the holy people He loves. When I... Uh, the, I I am from South Africa, I was born in Zimbabwe actually, and then at a young age moved to South Africa. My dad had left South Africa when he did because um, South Africa in all of the years of his life and then all of the year, most of the years of my life up to that point had been an apartheid nation. If you can go to the next slide, please, Kenty. And signs like this were not unfamiliar in our country when I was growing up, and uh, I, uh, I went to, it, it wasn't something that I really even understood was around me. I, uh, it, it wasn't something I consciously thought about, but it was just a reality in my life. Um, the school that I went to, there was not a single person of another nationality group. It was, it was completely white people, and the same in, in Linda's school as well. And uh, we, uh, we, we grew up in a nation that separated people by their racial groups, so whether they were white or black, or Asian or colored, we were separated. And that's actually what apartheid means. It means separateness. And um, the, the, the vast majority of South Africa was made up of black people. And in order for the small white minority to keep um, control of the country and power in the country, certain laws had to be put in place that disenfranchised and disempowered the majority of people that were there. And, and many of those were inhumane. Um, Laws. One of those is the picture you saw in the previous slide of the woman holding up that um, past laws make us slaves. And it was interesting, I was chatting to Titch yesterday and I was talking about how the fact, I think today in South Africa we are still reaping the consequence of those past laws because what they did was they took the fathers away from their children. And I obviously grew up in that environment without giving... Um, explicit assent to it it was an environment that i that I accepted as mine. The only black people I knew were my the, my maid or the gardener that came to a house or the people that would you know the kind of servants that were around and um, they served in the petrol station or wherever it was that I would come across so they weren 't my friends they weren 't in the, they weren't my my, uh, my my parents' friends and then in, uh, when I was seventeen years old in one thousand nine hundred and eighty seven um, I had the a great privilege unexpected it was an unusual thing that took place I was part of a Methodist youth group it was quite a political church actually but I was grateful to God for what they did at this moment this was 87 it was three years before Nelson Mandela would be released from prison it was seven years before the first um, democratic elections would be held in our nation um, apartheid was still very much the law of the land and um we uh, we went on a trip. There was a group of us, um, young men and women. As I said, I was 17 years old, and they took us to Soweto. And they took us a number of places. One of the places they took us to was Soweto. Soweto was a township, is what they were called in South Africa. It was an area where where black people lived. It was a, a people, uh, an area without the normal amenities. You can see there are some um, electricity poles bouncing around there, but um, it was a it was a, a area cast off to the side where hundreds of thousands, if I don't know how many lived in that, if not millions in sweat, I don't know what the size of the population there was. And they lived there so they could come into Johannesburg, the main financial center, and, and find work there. And uh, we ended up there, 17-year-old me and a couple of other white girls and boys as part of our youth group. And I can remember we were staying in this one lady's house. I, don't, I just remember it was really small. We were sleeping on the floor there. And uh, there was only one bathroom and so the girls used that. And we were sent down the road go use a shower down the road. And I remember walking down a street, honestly, in my memory, it's very, very much like this picture here it in my picture. And uh, it, was, it was this surreal experience because I'd come from this cocoon environment where everything around me was the white world I lived in and put into this very unfamiliar environment. It wasn't just the people, it was the, the place, and, and in many ways, it was a place that I was Told I should feel unsafe, and, and uh, I, it was in that place. It was like something's about to explode above my head, yeah. It was in that place that I felt God begin to shift and change my heart. And uh, that night, we sat in a um, in that little room, and our youth leader, her name was Eloise, described how a friend of hers, a black lady, had been picked up by the police, had been interrogated in prison, and uh, died in prison after that interrogation. I was then taken to a place called Kasatu House. Kassatu stands for the Congress of South African Trade Unions. It is, a, it is a, I suppose in many ways, a communist organization, and I'm not here to advance or defend or, or even fight against their, um, their political ideology. What they were, though, at that time was a voice for a people that had no voice and a place where those that were subject to that oppression could come find some... Um, Somebody to listen to them. And I remember they brought in a young guy into the room where we were. He was younger than me. I don't know how old he was. They asked him to take his shirt off. And as he did, we saw the wounds on his back of where he had been beaten. You know? And the great gift that I received in this was that God tore into the, the fabric of my reality. It was like he took my life and, and this, this facade that it was, and he, and he put his hand through it and just tore it, and I saw something different to the world that I lived in. And I think it was in that season of my life that God broke through the, the inevitable racism that was inside of me and uh, laid the seeds for, um, for creating space in my heart for the fact that the gospel was for all of God's people, regardless of their culture, the color of their skin, the education, or anything else. And I know that many of you could stand up here today and tell your story. Maybe you were from South Africa. Maybe you were on the other side of that reality curtain that was torn for me. It might be somebody from Sri Lanka telling the story of the hostility between the Tamil and the Sinhalese or somebody from Zimbabwe telling the story of the hostility between the Indebeli and the Shona um, or somebody from India talking about the hostility between the Muslim and the Hindu or history books that tell us of the hostility between the colonial colonialists and the natives and the nations that they came to. And at its core, This is about hatred and hostility between people and between people groups, starting with Cain killing his brother Abel. And what's most fundamentally disturbing about this is that this hostility between people and between people groups is the very polar opposite of what God created us for to experience and and how to live. One of my favorite books theology books anyway, it's not my generally favorite book, but of my theology books that I read is, is one by Stanley Grenz called um, Created for Community. And the, the kind of fundamental idea that undergirds this book is the nature of the Trinity, that our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who for eternity have been in perfect um, community with one another. And if Genesis one twenty-six is true, and Cause it's in the Bible, we know it is true, then God created us in His image and we are individually image bearers of God. So whether we are Sri Lankan or Indian or Zimbabwean or French or whatever our nationality, each one of us is an image bearer of God. But there's something else that is in that passage of Scripture that is so important. And Genesis one twenty six speaks um, of God saying this, He says, let us create them in our image. Somehow, we are created in the image of God. Ours is a a community God, and we are created in the image of this community God. And from the very beginning, both aspects of that identity get messed up. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames Adam. They both blame the snake. Cain kills Abel, and it just seems to go downhill from there. And uh, the image of our um, created creator community, what should be seen in the midst of a people that are for each other, is marred by sin. And Friends, that's why I, I, I see the value of, of politics and of laws and of legislation that, that limits the, the ways that people can mistreat each other. But the, the fundamental answer to this question is not going to be in legislation. It's going to be as the redeeming work of Christ takes place in the hearts of men and women. And that's where the good news comes in. When Christ died upon the cross, when he paid the price for our sin, when he bore the penalty and broke the power of sin, not only did he restore my individual created in the image of God identity, and your individual created in the God created in the image of God identity, he restored our created in the image of God identity as well. And we see this in Ephesians two, verses fourteen to seventeen. When Paul writing in another letter, you can put it up for me, please, Kenty says this about Jesus Christ. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, to create. In the same way that God in the beginning created, his purpose in the cross was to create in himself one new man of, of, out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God and through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And it's this backdrop that allows us to really appreciate what Paul is saying in that one verse in Colossians chapter 3. will not you put it up for me please? Yeah, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, um, Slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Here. Here in the church of Jesus Christ that is across the face of the earth. Here in the kingdom of God. Here in the local church. Here in the company of sons and daughters of the living God. Here he goes on to describe what is not in place. Here there is no Greek or Jew. And it's amazing when we read that sometimes we think, Well, that's like um See the difference is actually something quite small. Like it's like yeah, there's no Irish American or Swedish American. Do you know what I mean? it's like people that are so similar. Actually, this is like yeah, the, the, almost you could almost not find two different kinds of people. The the Jew, if, if a Greek invited a Jew over for dinner, the the Jew would say to them, "I can't come for dinner." And say, "Why not?" He says, "Because you're unclean. I can't eat with you. I can't eat from your plates. I can't. I can't. I can't eat your food." He wouldn't even even have a meal with them, and if the Greek were honest, and I think they were probably pretty honest most of the time about the Jews around them, they would have said the Jews were, were fools that were led by superstitions and didn 't understand culture and didn 't understand the world and didn 't understand philosophy. These were not two people that were close to each other, and Paul goes on in that passage and he speaks about the circumcised and uncircumcised the, the circumcised were those of the covenant, with Abraham as their father. They were, they were the, the beneficiaries of the promises of God. And the uncircumcised were those that were outside of it. They were literally the outsiders. And Paul says, "Here yeah, in the local church, there is no Greek nor Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. And then he goes on and he speaks about the fact that there's no barbarians. And uh, that word probably comes from a Greek word that. That's was well, speaking about foreigners actually and for the I described somebody of strange speech to the to the, the Greek or the other languages sounded like the, like this phrase ba 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 or maybe we would say blah blah blah. And it's like for me, I don't know what it's like for you when you're landing on Emirates Airlines back in Dubai and that guy comes on and he does the announcements in Arabic. I can pretty much repeat them to you. It sounds like this <laughs> just sounds like an arabic form of blah 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 and that's what the Greeks said it was just this this um this description of those that were they were not like them they were they were, they were different they were foreigners and um over time it began to describe somebody that didn't understand greek culture and um, and didn't it uh, was ignorant of the greek language and of the philosophies and of all those incredible things i suppose the greeks figured that that um invented like wendelin and um In time, it actually began to describe, it became something that described a lack of civility, a lack of decorum. And um, it's like when you travel and you find people that eat differently to you. So I was brought up to eat with a knife and a fork, not to have my elbows upon the table. And then I have the great privilege of traveling to Sri Lanka and having a meal with David Ganeshlingham. And uh, I had somebody come and correct me this morning and tell me he had a bone to pick with me. I, I think I might have offended a few people. And on that point, I'm going to refer you to something I'm going to say at the end, which is don't take yourself too seriously, so don't be too offended. But if you ever have the privilege of eating with David, he has a way of scrunching that food in like this and twisting it and shaping it and moving it until it's ready to be put into the mouth. And the food covers all of the hand like this, and you're going with your knife and fork, and you're going, well, oh, bury it like this? And that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. One, one of our motorbike trips into Sri Lanka we, we arrived in this forest and uh, I'm not painting all Sri Lankans by this picture there's good coffee in Sri Lanka as well and um, we got into this forest it was far away from any towns uh, we were unbelievably tired by the time we got there uh, we were cold I think it rained upon us that day and uh, I was ready to have a, a quick shower climb into bed while the rest of the guys played cards I just needed to have some certain ablutions before I could put myself to bed and so I went to bathroom and there was something quite fundamental missing from the bathroom, something called toilet paper. And so I went to uh, the guy that was kind of running the place and I said to him, I need toilet paper. He looked at me for a bit and then he just went like this. The universal signal for this is what you do with, there's no toilet paper. You barbarian! I thought to myself. And so, God puts us in the midst of people that are just different from us. There is, the, the things they do, the way they eat, the way that they go to the toilet, it was Anyway, I'm not even going to get into all of that stuff there. We're different. And Paul says there's no barbarians in the church of Jesus Christ. And then Paul takes it one step further. In fact, it's almost like in this, Paul takes it one step too far. He speaks of the the Scythians. Pocrates described these as completely different from the rest of mankind, like nothing but themselves. See that again. Completely different from the rest of mankind. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian who lived 400 years before Christ, describes them as living in wagons, offering human sacrifices, scalping and sometimes flaying slain enemies, drinking their blood and using their skulls for drinking cups. Now that's going to make communion awkward. Nice, guys. And there's actually a really serious point that Paul's trying to make in this. Because. He's describing a people that in some ways to those that were looking in and reading this letter, they would have regarded as completely other, almost subhuman. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called necklacing. It's a phrase badly familiar to those of uh, certainly at my age and older and even some that are younger because it's a practice, I know it's not restricted to South Africa alone, but something was carried out especially in the times of greatest violence where they would take a tire and they'd put it around someone's head, and they would fill it with fuel, and they would set it alight until the person burned to death in front of them like this. And I can remember seeing pictures like this, and seeing videos of this thing taking place, and your absolutely instinctive reaction to watching it is utter revulsion that it should take place. You see, but there's something else that follows on instinctively and naturally when you see something like that. The, the people that are carrying it out are different to you, you begin to lump those that do it into a group like the Scythians, a people that are completely other. And um, in South Africa, what would happen, this, this happened amongst, um, in the townships with blacks as they were punishing someone. And so the culture begins to accept something Actually, that's what black people are like. And you begin to legitimize Form of racism, not a form—a racism in your heart, a judgment of people by the group they're a part of. I was talking about this with Linda yesterday, and she was saying, "But, but every people group have committed such barbaric acts. And of course, they have. Every single people group. You, you go read history books, and you see what took place um, in uh, in Europe, and you read what took place in other parts of Africa and what's taken place in Asia and what's taken place in every part of the world we are all capable of these incredibly barbaric acts and they give us an excuse to treat other people like they're less than human whole groups of people like they're less than human and the enemy wants to use that to cause division between us and Paul says not here not in the church of Jesus Christ not here I had a man years ago come sit in my office and, uh, in South Africa, and he had, he had, been, he had been used to systematically um, kill other people. He was a Zulu man, and he had been dropped off at hostels at night, and him and others, they'd be dropped off with pangas and they would go into the hostels, and they would just murder those from the other tribe within these hostels. And he sat in my office, and he was weeping and weeping and weeping, and he was saying, is there any hope?" For is there any chance of redemption? And friends, the wonder of the gospel is, yes, there is. This man is still, my friend that he worshiped next to me, having been forgiven from that. He, he sat next to causes in the church, the people that he had attacked, and he, and he found redemption and life in it. And Paul says, not here, not here. There's no Scythians here. There's no Barbarians here. There's no Jew nor Greek in the body of Christ. And he goes on and he speaks about the slave or the free. And we know what slaves are. Somebody that has no political freedom, no economic freedom, no, not even freedom of movement and maybe even freedom over their own families. And it is, it is true that today they, are, they, they say there are more people in slavery in the world today than there's ever been in any other time in history. But there's no institutionalized slavery, slavery. There's no legalized slavery in the world today. But part of what we can take from this is that you've got people of such different economic spectrums together in the same church. There are people that earn next to nothing with people that earn great amounts of money. And it would be easy for us to have class distinctions between people. Um, James speaks about this, that somebody wealthy comes in and we give them the front row of the church and the person that's poor, we make them sit upon the floor. And Paul's saying, not here, not here, not in the church of Jesus Christ. And I think if if you if you look at that picture that Paul is painting, you, you have even more diversity than we could even imagine here in Dubai with all the different nationalities that we have. And it's into this context that Paul calls us to live as this multicultural community. In a in a city actually where racism is very much alive, very much real. It is a city where where we are we are judged very much on the basis of our ethnic and racial groups I know that people are paid in the city the term, their pay category is determined by their nationality Linda and I were looking to hire a villa in, uh, in, in uh, last year and we were going around looking at different places and we found this one place we're never going to rent it, it was way too big for us but we thought we would have a look at it anyway. we phoned the landlord to find out what the price was and uh, I got a hold of the landlord I said to him, um, what is the price of this villa we'd, we'd like to rent it well, we're, you know, we're considering renting. Let me put it that way. He said, "Where are you from?" I said, "I'm from South Africa." He said, "Are you black?" I said, um, "I said, no." He said, "Are you sure?" Let me have another look. And uh, we obviously didn't rent that villa. See, and God's saying here, yeah, in the midst of a culture that judges people by the color of their skin, here yeah, be counterculture. Yeah, give expression to the gospel that God has made us one people, that he has removed the dividing wall of hostility. And like so much that God calls us to, this is not the easy way. This is not the broad way that we get to walk on. I was having a chat with Matt earlier in the week about this. And Matt said, if it's hard, and he was playing devil's advocate, yeah, he was challenging the question. This morning I I, I saw him down the river a little bit. He He was challenging me the preacher saying if it's so hard why do we do it why would we not just hang the people that are the same risk why would we not follow that adage birds of a feather flock together why wouldn't we just have a south african church or a british church or an indonesian church or a sri lankan church why would we go through the pain of actually figuring out what it means to live in a multicultural?" and number one is because i can't even imagine leading a church who we would not make room for every single person that comes to the door that says, I want to find out about this Jesus. We, we would not make room for any person who says, I, I buy into what you guys are a part of and the vision and the values. Take this gospel into all the nations of the earth. How, how could we not be this? And, I, and in many ways, it's not like we've actually gone out and intentionally said, we want to build a multicultural church. We've just said, Lord, we want to plant a church. We just want to be the church of Jesus Christ in this city. And God has added to us people of different cultures. And it's been interesting because I think that we haven't realized the implications because what God has done in terms of shifting the culture of our congregation has accelerated over the last couple of years. I think if we go back five or so years, we didn't have anything remotely like this kind of diversity in the life of the church. And it's been God that's done it and we haven't realized the complexity that it brings. And friends, every time you enter into a new relationship, it it enriches you, but it brings complexity. Isn't that true? When you get married, isn't that true? One of the the challenges of getting married late in life is you learn how to do things your way, and suddenly somebody comes along and says, I'm going to have a say in the way things go on there. And uh, I was listening to a talk on uh, on, um, whatever, I could not remember what it was, this afternoon, and... uh, was the title of the talk was why you'll always marry the wrong person and uh and uh in some ways that's true because because as wonderful as this is as god brings somebody into your life that enriches you like like uh, wives you get to have these incredibly handsome men at your side that will love upon you and protect you and sing songs to you at night as you fall asleep you all do that don't you and You also have somebody who brings a great deal of complexity into your life. Isn't that true, ladies? It's like life would be so much easier without this guy's issues in the midst of us. Then you add in children. They take all your money. And then they leave your home. And then they don't even phone you anymore. Preach it. Every single relationship we enter into, enriches us and brings complexity with it. And it's the same thing in a multicultural community as well. And this community enriches us, and I'll I'll mention some of the ways in a moment, but it complicates life as well. It enriches us because it, it allows us to be a profound witness to the world. What we should care about more than anything else is the glory of Jesus Christ. What we should care about more than anything else is that this gospel message reaches a lost world. And what better way to demonstrate it than for a person to walk in and see people of every culture and nationality gather together genuinely loving upon each other. We are also an opportunity to, for, to be an expression of God's love to each other. Uh, I love the fact that we can, from whatever culture we come from, whatever nationality we come from, whatever color us, we can be an expression of God's love one to another. And being in this community together is an is a opportunity for the, the deep sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If you want, you want to look at the person that's growing the least, find the person who's never got married. See, there's something about me being married that sanctifies us in, in a way that no other thing can do. But being a part of a community like this is. What are my excesses as a part of my culture as they rub and bounce against another culture like this and I, and, I, and I allow the Holy Spirit in to deal with that excess? What are my deficits? And then interact with the cultures, the Holy Spirit uses that to lift us up again. So how do we live like this? And uh, I'm going to just take a short time, maybe 10 minutes maximum, just to go through this. Because I actually don't want to give the answers tonight. Not that I think there are any very obvious answers to it anyway. Because this is really a conversation that we need to be on. We need to be talking about to each other about what it means to live in a multicultural community. What it means to be um, to be genuinely um, and authentically in community with each other. Three things. Number one is that it's not a skin problem. Colossians 3 verse 8 to 9 talks about our this, this, the sinful nature that we to take off or the sinful acts that we to remove from ourselves. As someone once said, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. If it wasn't skin color that we used to divide upon it would be class if it wasn't class it would be education or whatever it is that we would um, define it but we we are sinful by nature and we we have been crucified with christ on the cross but our but that that the the muscle memory of that sin hasn't been completely removed from us matt was telling me about a a church he went to in the in another country (laughs) and um in this church He was stayed. I think it was a pastor, eh? Was it a pastor? Just a family in the church. Don't tell us he had another girlfriend other than Hannah. That's impossible. (laughs) Um, He was an elder in the church. Matt said it was an amazingly godly family. Like when they said grace, it was with great gusto, but he says he's never seen such a racist man in his entire life. And we can be. God-lovers and God-followers and have an area of our life that hasn't been subject to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to invite the Spirit of God in to deal with that. Friends, it is not okay for you to have attitudes about people based on the color of their skin or the culture of who they are to judge them and define them by those things. And when those those attitudes rise up, we need to bring them before the Lord and we need to repent. I love the fact that God gives us such an open door. This never going to be rejected when you come in repentance God's not going to go no ways not that sin get out of here the Bible makes it so clear no matter what we do my friend who killed other men murdered them was able to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross we can find forgiveness no matter what attitudes we have no matter what thoughts have been a part of our life we repent of it and we if necessary we make restitution if we have I don't mean Pay reparations. What I'm talking about is if we have offended or hurt someone or crossed the line, friends, have the humility to repent first to God and then to go to the person and say, I crossed the line there with you. I, I want to repent that I that I treated you as if you were less than me or whatever it is that we've done. And then repent, make restitution and, and, and engage in renewal. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your mindset. Ask the questions, get to know them, get to understand who it is. That God has put before you. It's not a skin problem. Number one, number two, be like Christ. Colossians three, verse ten says, "Put on your new nature and become like Him." In uh, John chapter five, Jesus says, "The Son can do nothing except He sees the Father do it first. You see, we're all different. We have different cultures that we come from. How is it possible for us to function together in any sort of coherent way? We've got the same Father. We might have a different mother, all of us, but we've got one father. We share in the bloodline of Christ, which is not just, um, not just like a fact in terms of who we are now, but actually we follow that father. He sets the tone for us in terms of how we live. And there might be varieties in the way we do things, but the underlying, there's an underlying commonality in the kingdom. So we might worship completely differently um, in the nations that we come from, but the, the basics of worship, that it is God-honoring, that it is extravagant, that it is sincere, that it is whatever those characteristics are, that's, that we share in common. They are, they are, and, and cultures are different, we know that. I um, remember reading a book some time ago on, it was by somebody, Lingenfelter, how's that for a surname? Lingenfelter, on, um, on mu- in multicultural ministry. And he spoke about event based cultures versus time based cultures. And so he was using the Pacific Islanders as event based culture. He tells a story. It's a great story about these guys. They're building this boat on the shore. But the reports had come through that there was a hurricane coming. And so he went and he battened up his windows and he moved everything off and put it in the, in the basement below and prepared himself for this hurricane that was going to go. And these guys were still building their boats on the shore. And he went to them and he said to them, there's a hurricane coming. You better pack this boat away or whatever is to protect it from the storm. As they looked around and they said, "Weather well, looks fine like this. And they carried on building their boat. In the next couple of days, a hurricane came through, completely wiped out the boat, and they went back to the shore again and started building the boats again. And he was saying from his Western mindset, it was like, like impossible for him to comprehend what was going on. And I see this when I go minister in Zimbabwe. You have a meeting that starts at 10 o'clock, and um, 10 o'clock, shmen o'clock. Who cares what time the meeting starts? Guys are rocking up two hours later, it makes no difference. Because the, the issue is not what time the meeting starts, it's that the meeting takes place. And we can learn something from that, and I'll give you the lesson from the other side as well, is that people matter more than schedules. That's actually one of them. That's, that's part of what that culture is: is people matter more than time. The other side of it is that we want to be truthful. We want to honor other people. If we say that we're going to meet at 10 o'clock, then we're going to meet at 10 o'clock, because otherwise we're a liar, unless you were, unless by 10 o'clock you mean 12 o'clock. Then just say 12 o'clock, so that I don't have to wait for you for two hours, if that's all right. We want to be close, not just in proximity. We want to be connected. You can come on a Friday. You can hang with people. We can say, oh, what an amazing multicultural church we have, but actually never connect with people. Have any of you got those electric drills? You know, you kind of put them on a cradle like this, and when you need them, you sweep them up, and you drill over your house, and you hang stuff, and do whatever you need to do, and then you put it back on the cradle again. And sometimes you don't put it on in a way that it it connects. It's, It's close to the charger, but it's not connected on it. And so when you pick it up, it's got no charge. Friends, God wants us not just to be close to each other. He doesn't want us to just rub shoulders with people that are different to us. He wants us to be connected. Like Remy and Elizabeth. they are two cultures connected together with each other in marriage. You don't have to marry Remy or Elizabeth, but you could join the connect group. See, it, I'm, this is a, it's a, a real appeal to us. That we take the time, we make the effort to actually press into one another. It is so easy for us to hang with the people that are like us. I, I feel the same way. It's easy to share stories with people that have the same background as me, that, that enjoy the same kind of sports as me, that, whose names are easy to pronounce like my name. And uh, it's, a, it's a harder thing for us to press in on people and to be able to um, build that kind of relationship that I, I can learn from them and they can learn from me and we can find each other in the relationship. Lastly, under this point, it means extending grace towards one another. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest. In Colossians, it says that we need to bear with one another. And the reason why Jesus is a merciful and high priest is because, it, it, well, it says that he has sympathy for us. He understands where we come from. He bears with us in our humanity, as it were. And um, we need to bear with one another. We need to be ready to forgive one another when somebody crosses the line. It is, it is not, let me just say, it is not easy for us to build genuine community together in a multicultural community as it is if we were all exactly the same. I mean, just on the issue of names alone, I was, uh, I got a name this evening, um, Izzy Tutu, Izzy, is he? Izzy is he Tiki, is that right? Huh? Izzy Gotu. See, that's the problem. I was actually praying to God the one day. I said, Lord, you've got to give me a gift to be able to remember Nigerian names. Because in particular, that seems to be a, a blockage for me. And there are some Sri Lankan names as well that can kind of get. That took me a while to get Prima Chandra right. It sounds so easy rolling up the tongue now. But when the first time you see a name like that, or those cricketers' names like Sangakara, I don't know what happens. I don't know if Sri Lankans kind of take 14 names and put them together in one and say, that's going to be my new name. Like, like, like in the West, we just have one name. It's like, like this. And, um, and so I was praying, God, please won't you bring me, uh, give me like a gift to remember um, Nigerian names. And then the one Friday we had um, five different people of Nigerian origin come to the life of the church. And, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to remember these names. And how's with the names of these people? It was Robert, Sharon, Daniel, Julian, and Benjamin. Thank you, Lord. I feel like I have it. I've got the gift, you know. We've got, a, we've got an elder in our morning congregation whose name is Kheran which seems like a perfectly reasonable name. Can you say that together with me? Geron. Now, all of you seem to have done pretty well in saying it. John, who has known Heron for five or six years, he actually once sent me a, a video recording where he and um, Shelley was actually trying to teach him how to say Heron's name. And like, so, yeah, yeah. I wish I'd kept it. I would have played it for you tonight. And so John has given up and he now calls him Corrin. We know it's Corinth. And we had a staff meeting on, on this week, we had a meeting this week, and we were um, talking about some of the names of people that need to be prayed in, and And Matt had one name in particular that he's been practicing all week that he couldn't quite say, and so for the first 10 minutes of the meeting, it was just like, so this week, have we... We just asked him to write it down, and we figured it out. But can you... Can you imagine if we were a part of a community that actually gives each other a bit of grace in these things? If, I, if we forget each other's names, and because, because it's easy, much easier for me to remember a, a, a name that's kind of in my, my range, my arc. Then I, I meet somebody's name. Then I'll say, sorry, can you just say that again? And then my head and through again. It's like One more time. Like, what happened? I just heard it like five seconds ago. What's going on with this name? And I say, well, look, I just want your number. Would you mind just typing your name into my phone yeah? Do you know what I mean? Like, and, um, and, it's, and then what happens is by, I come back next week, and it's gone again. Because, because, uh, and then I'm too embarrassed to then go ask the person because they think I don't care about them. And so when I see them, I actually walk the other way just in case I've got to say their name. But if we actually had grace for each other, we'd be able to say, actually, I've forgotten your name. will not you remind me what it is, please? And they tell you, and then you go, one more time, please. And they tell you. Just one more time, and then I'm sure I've got it. The last thing that we do, I think, to help us live in the community is we see Christ's image. Colossians 3, verse 11 says, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. And that's what unites us, not the the DNA or the biological markers. You know that um, racial characteristics, the things that make us different from each other, amount for only 0.012% of biological variation. So that means that there's much more chance that I am different to Wayne, who is also a white South African male. Our biological difference is greater than the possibility probably in in my difference between me and somebody from Nigeria for example. Those biological markers that determine the color of our skin or the shape of our eyes or our nose or our lips or any part of our body are such a small part of what make us up. And that's why they actually aren't many races in the earth today there's actually only one human race by by scientific evidence and what happens is we come into the church of jesus christ as paul says here christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us and there's an invitation for us to look past those surface things and into the inside won't you guys um won't the worship please come up and the guys that are doing communion can start handing out the elements I want to finish by reading two scriptures to us tonight. One is one that uh, Wayne prayed in our prayer meeting tonight, from two Corinthians five verse sixteen to seventeen. From the New Living Translation again, it says this: So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. What a big mistake that is! How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. And a new life has begun. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 17. It says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things sorry, the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And in a moment we're gonna we're gonna break bread together. You're not breaking, you're gonna pick some bread, thanks you. that. The Bible tells us that this it's called a sacrament was something that Jesus left behind for us to do here. Paul says that he told us to do this often in remembrance of him. And it happened on the night before Jesus was betrayed. It says that he um, he took a loaf of bread, one loaf. He was sitting at the table with his twelve disciples, and he took that one loaf and he broke it into pieces, and he passed out the pieces of the bread to those who were gathered together there. And I I think one of the greatest pictures that comes from this communion meal that we get to share together and and this is hardly that lovely big loaf of bread that Jesus would have been breaking up. This is one big, massive um, Arabic bread that we cut up into pieces. And so we're all sharing tonight of the one loaf. But as you eat this, and as I eat this, and somebody else on the other side eats this, as somebody from Nigeria and Indonesia and Malaysia and Australia and South Africa and wherever eats this, what happens is we're reminded that we are one body This goes into me as it goes into you. It's a reminder that Christ is in me as he's in you. And then the Bible says that they drank from one cup as well. And we, for the sake of being able to not have to pass one cup around the whole room, each have our own cup here. But actually this is one cup that we drink from. It's the cup of the new covenant. And God reminds us that we all have come into that new covenant. It's the blood of Christ that causes us or allows us entry into a new covenant. It's not a covenant for just the Jews. It's a covenant for us as well, for the Gentiles. It's a covenant for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. It's a covenant for the barbarian, for the Scythian. It's a covenant for the slave, and it's a covenant for the free. And it's a covenant that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why don't you take a moment and just look into your cup now. And you see that juice understand that this is a picture for us of the blood of Jesus Christ that He shed upon that cross. And through that blood, friends, we are washed as white as snow. And we are brought through His forgiveness through the doorway of reconciliation and into the family of God, where we are literally, we are literally brothers,